missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James. Steffi is on assignment, but with me, as always, is Jason. Hey, I'm taking Steffi's line today. (laughs) And we have another special guest joining us all the way from Athens and the Luxi Podcast, Dr. Alexis Katsis. Hello. Alexis, Dr. Lex, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Tonight, we got cyborg cells and chaotic jewelry, but first, let's get to know our guests a little bit better. So we got Dr. Lex here tonight. She is a podcaster, a luxurious podcaster, mighty one might even say. So, uh, Alexis, I got one question. Tell us a little bit about what you do. So, yeah, our podcast focuses on the science behind luxury items, and it's a way for me to merge my two interests, which is science. I'm absolutely always curious about how things work, and I like luxury items. I like shiny things. I was that... I was the girl in the lab with the heels, like close-toed heels, of course, right? Mm-hmm. It's a lab, but I still had heels on in the lab. <laughs> so this is a way to kind of merge those two worlds. And uh, our goal is to kind of make science a little fun again. Um, there's a lot of science that we hear about in the news, and that's usually scary science, viruses, earthquakes, snowstorms. Um, so this is a way for people to still engage with science in a way that's a little bit more fun and a little bit hopefully more relatable, doesn't feel quite as scary as talking about viral pandemics, which I did a lot of. <laughs> sure. Just Why like, was that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just came out of nowhere. <laughs> who knew, right? <laughs> who knew? Just, just such an interesting being, niche topic to explore. I know. Who, be, who knew being an immunologist during that time would you know, garner a lot of questions? <laughs> so why don't we talk about you being an immunologist during the time of COVID? What was that like? Were you just dodging uh, gotcha questions left and right? Or, or was there a lot of stress and anxiety and all that stuff that went around with it? It was a little bit of both. So I, at the time, was working for an organization in Seattle, Washington, that does used to do predominantly HIV clinical trials. And then when COVID came on board, we pivoted and started to work on the COVID vaccine trial. So there was a stress of actually being part of that operation, which was fast and it was long hours. And you know, I had a team and so I was responsible for my team and their well-being. And then we we're all switched to remote work and then people's relatives were getting COVID. So there was all of that going on. And then there were people asking me legitimate questions about the virus. And you know, I'm not a virologist, so I will, would always defer to other people who are more experts, but you know, about the vaccine and the efforts. And once the vaccine came out, I wanted to be an outspoken advocate for it, knowing what went into to its discovery. And you know, that that garners interest, both positive interest and some not so positive interest. And so there was a lot of learning when it's worth it to engage, because sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes engaging people are already set in what they think. And so no amount of me trying to explain was going to work because they were coming from a place of fear, essentially. And when people are afraid, they can turn to different things that are that more align with our belief system or make them feel safer. And that and there's no amount of fact that can get you through that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, it, it was. I had to, um, I limited how much I went on social media. I actually 
figured out a way to make my computer not allow me to go on Facebook. <laughs> mm. You should sell that. <laughs> it's actually, I mean, if you can Google it, it's not that hard. It's a command line. Anyway, but yeah, overall, I had really good conversations with some people who are kind of undecided. And um, you know, some people then decided to get the vaccine. And so for me, it was like every one person, if we can get them in and get the vaccine, then that was one more person that, you know, was protected against going to the hospital or dying. So that's sort of how I had to look at it. I don't have that much of a following to have a like global impact, but for my friends and family or their friends and family, and I just put myself out there as a resource. I said, if anyone has any questions, no judgment, don't th ever think it's a silly question. You can always come to me and I will do my best to try to have a, a positive conversation with you. So let me follow up with that actually, because I did something similar. I made myself available to whomever wanted information that I could help them interpret. That didn't go as well with my friends and family as I had hoped. Oh no! The folks who wanted the information went and sought the information on their own. Mm -hmm. Those who didn't want the information were the ones who were firmly entrenched in the camp of, I'm not going to yeah. get a vaccine because yeah. I'm listening to Joe Rogan and Joe Rogan tells me, that that's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. So how were you able to be effective at that in the face of so much misinformation and disinformation? What was your strategy? I think the strategy for me was having uh, personal connections with most of the people that came to me. And I think that that's what helped. One person in particular I knew, and we were friends, and we'd always been on sort of opposite sides of any political divide, but we were friends. And so she came to me and was like, look, I just don't know. I'm having a hard time. Can you tell me about this? Can you tell me about that? And I answered all her questions. And I kept emphasizing, it's like, nobody can make you do this. This is your choice. The choice might have some consequences, but it is your, still your choice. So I go, you know, for me, if I were in your position, I had an elderly mother that I was worried about, I would just want to do everything possible that I could to protect her. And I, and I think that's what, what it came down to. It wasn't the facts, it was the why. What is your why for getting this? Or what is your why for not getting it? And can we talk about that? Because that's what really motivates people. It's not the facts, it's the why. Why should I do this? Why should I not do this? And what's the personal reason for me? If they're deep down the like, this is a huge conspiracy and it's going to give me a microchip, there's, there's not a lot you can do to pull that back up. I totally agree with you. One of the things that struck me though was when I would have conversations with some of my family who then had met with their healthcare providers who were not up to date on the science of vaccines. And yeah. were recommending against getting a vaccine because it was too experimental. Yeah. You know, these were folks from really well established mm -hmm. medical institutions, yeah. right? We're we're not talking, you know, rural yeah. America. We're talking about major medical institutions that are known for their um expertise and still have clinicians who are not up to date mm -hmm. on the science. And so I found that to be the hardest part, right? They would come to me asking questions, but the moment I would say something, they yeah. would you know, double back and uh, and say, well, you know, my my doctor from the Mayo Clinic mm -hmm. said I shouldn't be doing this, right? Yeah, I think it's really hard. I during this pandemic, we really, I think people finally got a view into how complex science and medicine is and how specialized it's had to be. You know, years and years ago, you could be a GP and know something about mostly everything, and that worked, right? But as our knowledge has grown. That's just harder, even within scientific fields. Like I am a parasitologist, right? So I don't opine on viruses very often. What I will do is go find a virologist and quote them or, you know, because I don't know everything about viruses. 
<laughs> you know, even though I'm an immunologist and microbiologist, but like, so I think that's, that's the hard part with the medicine too. Cause you had like, you know, that guy from Stanford who was a neurologist who was spouting off anti-vaccine. And I'm like, buddy, the last time you had a vaccinology class was back in med school. And I took that class and I know you don't remember any of it, but that's not what the, you know, the modern conception is, oh, he's an educated person. He must know because he's a doctor. And we've been telling people for years to trust our doctor. And now we have to be like, but not that doctor. <laughs> it's just, it's very, conf- I can see where it's really confusing for people. Right? Yeah, yeah no, that's a really good point. I mean, the thing that shook me, I think, to my core was that as a scientist, I have known for a long time how science works yeah. and it works non-linearly, right? <laughs> yes. And the public is not used to seeing science happen in real time and in a non-linear fashion. And so it made our jobs as science communicators even more difficult in the face of an incredibly difficult situation, right? And then we had to deal with um, the clinicians who maybe weren't up to speed either. Or, and I know that this is something I have been rattling a saber about for a long time, maybe we need to start teaching you know, teaching clinicians how to be scientists or what? training them like scientists and what? not like mechanics. Crazy talk. Right. (laughs) My PhD lab actually was run by a physician and he had a lot of clinical fellows go through and it was really fascinating to see them adjust to life in the lab. (laughs) Right. I same thing. I did my postdoc in a in a clinical department and we would have postdocs who were PhDs and Mm -hmm. postdocs who had their MDs. And there was a big difference in what you could um, get accomplished with a postdoc who had a PhD versus a postdoc who had an MD because they just didn't have the training. They just didn't know how to approach science from the same perspective that a PhD does. Um, And it was just, it was fascinating, right? I should have known then we were on a collision course for some problems. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's probably a lot you could say about modern medical education and probably a lot actually about the whole PhD to postdoc process as well, to be fair. And I think that part of it is really providing training for doctors and scientists to talk about not just what they do, but how they do it and why they do it. Because I think that that's the missing the missing little chunk. You see people still giving Tony Fauci crap because he wavered about masks. I'm like, no, he didn't. He changed his mind because the data the data said to change your mind. He was answering different questions, yes. right? I mean, at first it was don't wear masks because we need to save the supply yes. for the healthcare providers. Stay yes. in your house, right? Yeah. Then it was right. wear a mask because we can't keep you in your houses, right? Can't do that. Right. We obviously yeah. can't do that. We tried. So, we really did. Right, right. I mean, you know, that was a... Uh, a failure from the first moment, right? It was on a course to just hold on. You're trying to say that the most individualist country in the history of of history <laughs> wasn't going to like act collectively for even five minutes? I don't believe. It. Right? Yeah. There's something yeah. to be said about American exceptionalism, right? Ex- exceptionalism. Yeah. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, I think it's what you, but James, I think it's what you said. It's the individualism, right? We have we have a strong sense of the individual in the U.S. and um, Rug, rugged individualism, even. Yes. Yeah. And it, you know, it, there's pros and cons to everything. And there's pros and cons to that too. And as we saw in the pandemic, one of the challenges is that when you need to do a broad sweeping public health intervention, it's, it can, and, and that's not just this pandemic. I mean, if you look back to history, it's, it's all of, all of them. When seatbelts sure. came out, people, you can't tell me to strap myself into my car. Or, you get, you know, like it's, it's, it's everything. <laughs> I mean, your people can't see your virtual background because this is an audio only podcast. So I'm going to describe Alexis's background is like the site of one of the first epidemics that we have a lot of stuff written about. So, you know, 
they acted a little bit selfishly during that one too. So maybe it's just a human thing. Oh yeah. I'm talking about the Athenian plague also because I didn't describe what was behind her now. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's a picture of the Caryatid temple at the Acropolis. Yeah, I'm reading a, a biography of Catherine the Great the Empress of Russia. And in, in it, there's a small section about her being inoculated against smallpox. And I mean, at the time, like smallpox killed so many people and disfigured even more. And at the time when Jeddah came out with this inoculation, people thought he was absolutely bonkers. Like the leading, <laughs> the leading, you know, minds in Europe were just like, no, surely not. Surely you can't do that. This isn't going to work. And then the monarchy was like, heck no, we're not doing this. And she was one of the few monarchs that got vaccinated initially. And so I think there's always a resistance to something that seems new. What got you into podcasting? What what made you want to go out to the glamorous world of? audio-only podcasting and talk about luxury. Well, it all ties in because it was a pandemic project for sure. <laughs> Stuck in my house. Like every podcast. Every day, yeah. The rigors of what I was doing at the time and the stress that it involved, I needed a creative outlet that could help with that. And I, I started first as a blog because I like to write. And then I was like, well, I don't know. I like to talk more. So maybe I'll just talk about it. And it started with just me. And then I interviewed my husband, who at the time was working for one billionaire's rocket company. Not allowed to say which one. And so I interviewed him about space tourism. And it was fun to do it together. And so now it's a project that we do together. It's kind of a time uh, that we know that we'll be able to do something, just the two of us. And it's really fun to create something with him. And it doesn't hurt that he had a radio show in college and he's an electrical engineer. So he does all my audio engineering for me. I love that. <laughs> I, I never expected that we'd be at a point in time where you can say one billionaire's space company and it isn't just that one space company that's owned by a billionaire. There's like, exactly. Doesn't necessarily narrow it down. There's at least three. <laughs> yeah. It's got to say something about where we're going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere off this planet, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently. It'll be the Gilded Age of Mars. Yeah. And the, the episode's still up if, if you're interested. It's called Space Tourism. And we uh, he calculates, he does a back-of-the-envelope calculation of how many lemons you would need to power a Tesla for a minute. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm all for back of the envelope calculations, but isn't that how we ended up with all of the uh, SpaceX satellites falling back down to Earth? <laughs> that was only 50% of one launch. Uh, you know, <laughs> they sent 60 up and 30 did an oopsie. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, like we've had a couple of oopsies lately. So in the space field. Well, isn't there like a famous time when when one part of the JPL did calculations in Imperial units and one did it in metric and yeah. the first Mars rover exploded into a crater in Mars yeah. because it didn't slow down time? I got to say, they use the weirdest metric like units in space engineering yeah. i don't understand it all astronomical units what does that even mean yeah I, they, they just don't make any sense and i'm not sure why it's like one of the few fields that never picked up the metric unit you know system and i was like i just why are you not in metric like it doesn't like every other science i've ever <laughs> encountered was is in metric except this one there's an interesting history there actually i was gonna say maybe uh, maybe we gotta talk to somebody that's involved in space I'm sure it has to do with some company not wanting to change how they manufacture their parts. That's always the thing, right? <laughs> Let's talk to Boeing. Alexis, thank you so much for sharing that 
we're going to get to some news. But first, we'll uh, give you a message from a podcast that I think you're going to enjoy. Nature, we're part of it. Animals, we're one of them. What can we learn from other species? How can our lives be better by reconnecting with nature? And why does it matter at all? That's what Wild Connection, the podcast, is all about. Every week, we bring you authors, filmmakers, scientists, and conservationists whose work is revealing why being connected to nature and wildlife matters. You can find us where you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We're hosted by Podbean, so you can find us there too. And you can keep up with us on Twitter at WildConnectPod. Welcome back to the podcast. And I got to admit, I like to have a lot of fun when I intro the news stories we cover on the podcast. But sometimes I feel like I play into the hype of the headlines a bit too much. So... In the interest of being a good science communicator and making Alan Alda proud, let's talk about the facts of our first story. A team led by Chimang Tan from UC Davis has engineered a new type of cell that is synthetic enough to allow for the addition of new features while alive enough to mimic normal biological functions. And while it's still early days in their research, they hope this new type of cellular engineering could lead to a breakthrough in medicine, engineering, and even clean up our polluted waterways. So there you have it, just a normal intro to an interesting science story without overhyping the information by pointing out that this could be the beginning of the formation of a new cyborg wing of the Xenobot army that will eventually cause the downfall of humanity as we know it. That's right, we're bringing it back to the Xenobots. Take a shot if you're listening. That's six weeks in a row. We're, we're throwing it back to our Xenobot overlords. So, why don't we talk about cyborg cells and how they probably also won't lead to the downfall of humanity. I feel like humanity can lead itself to its own downfall. I don't know that we need cyborg cells. <laughs> <laughs> but they'll help. They might. I, I, mean, I just thought this was super fascinating in that my the small person that lives with us, um, our kid has been asking me a lot of questions lately about our, our new bedtime routine is for him to ask me about um, viruses and uh, white blood cells. And this the concept of what's alive, right? Is a virus alive? Is it not? Are these alive? Are they not? And we're starting to blur those lines even more. And so for me, the most interesting part of this are the ethical implications of it, right? Like what do we what do we do with this cyborg cell? I don't know. It's kind of crazy. So let's talk about that for a second. What makes something alive? What is the answer that you give to the little person in your house? Well, I think I went down the really scientific of like, can it self-replicate? Yeah, that was the first thing that popped in my mind too, right? So I guess these would not be. Correct. So so to be clear, like these, for lack of a better word, cyborg cells mm -hmm. um, do not replicate. That is the thing that makes them really actually important and useful yes. is that yeah. they can be controlled because they're not going to be wildly replicating. So the definition then of life, one definition of whether something is living is whether or not it can self-replicate. That's one definition. There are plenty of other ones. Oh, like, yeah. is there respiration of some form? That would cut out viruses, being so not alive, so to speak. But again, it's just an arbitrary sort of point. So 
How do we decide if something is alive? This is where the ethical implications really come in, right? I'm just glad that I don't have to figure that out. It's not my job. Yeah, these are interesting because you're you're programming a bacteria to essentially produce an extra extra extracellular matrix. And I think for me that they might not replicate, but bacteria do like to evolve and mutate and they do do it fairly quickly in relation to pressures, environmental pressures. And so the question is not not just do they replicate or not, but are they going to mutate or not? Is this this is this ability going to get to transfer to other bacteria that you might not want it to? I think those are all still things that need to be figured out. And then they in the article they're they're talking about using this potentially for targeted cancer therapy. So then the question becomes how do you want to do that targeting? Because that I think is the other aspect of it, aside from the rather extensive safety profiling that they're going to have to do. <laughs> Maybe you don't know the answer, but I, I bet you probably are getting closer to the answer than like myself. I read that and they're like, yeah, we could do this with targeted. How, how do you, how do you target? How do you do it for targeted? Like there, is there a little, is there a little crew in there with a, a targeting computer? Is it the force? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And we read that a lot when we're talking about like targeted therapy, but like how, mm -hmm. how, how they target, I don't know. So some targeted therapies have to do with gene expression from the cancer cells. I think a good example, I don't know the exact gene, but it, there's a, a breast cancer therapy that was really radically effective, but only if your uh, cancer cells produced a, uh, turned on a specific gene. And so if they turn on a specific gene, they're, they're turning on a specific protein manufacturer. And so you can... You can either target the pathway that that gene expresses, or if the cancer cells are actually expressing a protein on their surface that is different than the cells around it, you could do an antibody target to it. So they're they're adding on the synthetic receptors for for targeting. They could. It's one way to do it. I mean, that's the easiest way I can think of. That's. I mean, that's just my perspective as an immunologist, because like for me, it was all about the antibody antigen pairings. So sure. I'm sure, there's a bazillion other ways you can do it. So, <laughs> so Alexa, something you said a second ago triggered something that that makes me wonder why. Wonder what the benefit of using bacterial cells um, as a scaffold for this would be, right? Because there are, you know, there are lots of good reasons to do it. We know so much about the genome of bacteria, um, and so mm -hmm. it's easier to use CRISPR and those sorts of things to target specific genes and make sure that they can get, you know, translocated into whatever, right? Uh, meaning that you can take these bacterial cells and get whatever you need to get into some other space, into that space uh, mm -hmm. to target some sort of therapy. But bacterial cells, bacteria have other issues when it comes to transmission that we don't have in non-bacterial cells, right? So we have horizontal transmission of mm -hmm. information, meaning that uh, these cells are going to spread information within the same generation of cells, right? So they don't have to replicate in order to get information from one cell to the next. Whereas you and me, our cells replicate by, we call that vertical transmission. Um, one cell divides into two cells, right? And that information gets passed on that way. It doesn't go across the same generation of cells. And so it seems to me, you've got a really good opportunity on the one hand and a really bad potential on the other hand. As an immunologist, when you're thinking about these kinds of things, how do you rectify those two pulling, tugging forces, right? And figure out how to harness it for good. I'll let up you there and say there's not just two, there's many, right? So yeah, this particular paper used E. coli, which as you said, is fast growing, it's well characterized, and it's easy to work with. And so those are great things for a proof of concept, which is what this was, right? Um, but since I still work in clinical trials, I have my clinical trial hat on and say, like, 
is this organism grass generally regarded as safe by the FDA? And that's actually what you're going for, because if you are eventually going to put this into people, you better be doing it on the, the scaffold of an organism that the FDA thinks is safe, because otherwise you have like such a long regulatory road ahead of you. And then the other thing for me as an immunologist is, is the body going to recognize this as something foreign? And is that going to hinder the process at all? It may or may not, but if you're putting it into people and it's a bacteria and it's not supposed to be there, chances are your body is going to be like, no, thank you. I don't want this. <laughs> right. And so then what do you and do? And you should that? be and thankful for that. Right. I yes. mean, and in some cases that's good because the body's immune system, like a vaccine, your body's immune system will amplify the effects of what you're trying to do. But if that's not what you want, <laughs> then you have to think about it. Um, so yeah, there's there's this balance between what do you do as a proof of concept, which is clearly was, and they clearly chose it because it was easy and reproducible. A lot of people could reproduce it versus, you know, then what are the steps? If you want this to go into people, what are the steps along what's called your, your preclinical and then clinical development pathway? Like where do you, and one of the things that they use in industry a lot is called a target product profile. So it's a profile of what is the end product, what does the efficacy need to be, what does the safety profile need to be, what does the cost need to be, all of that so that you have this very clear set of criteria to start making decisions about where this should go. It sounds like it's a basic research lab, so we'll see kind of where it goes from there. But doing it at bacteria first, I think, was super smart. Bacteria, you could just put stuff in them and they pump it out. Like, they don't really care what it is. They're like, ooh, new gene, let's turn it on. <laughs> it's more complicated than that. But they're not, it's not as complicated as trying to get some, like a mammalian cell to make it. Sorry, I hope that answered your question. No, it totally does. <laughs> the bacterial cells are like the toddlers of the cellular world, right? I mean, they yeah. just want to flip on the light switch and see what happens, flip it off, yeah. see what happens, right? Let's make all the things. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they know that they're going to get messy and, and make a mess of everything. But, you know, at the end of the day, okay. tomorrow's a new day, right? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the more like chilling lines that I read in the popular science article, not necessarily in the actual uh, journal article, was when they were talking about how these bacterial cells are a little tougher than their non-cyborg brethren, their, their regular E. coli, so they can have higher stresses, pH levels, antibiotic exposure. And then they followed with the line, much like actual cyborgs, they're tough. Are they confirming that we are like creating actual cyborgs, pumping them out? T-1000s are just around the corner. <laughs> what do they know? I don't know. I mean, what's, what, what university is this out? Is this Caltech? This is Cal Oh, they know. Then they know, don't they? Then they might know. <laughs> I mean, they're in the heart of it. They're in that California, Silicon yeah. Valley, like... So Who knows what startups are going on there. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe just as like a, a sign off on this story, just to the, the team at Caltech, like if you are working on some kind of network that does things in the sky, like a, like a sky net, maybe, maybe don't, I just for, for starters. It's just a reminder that with great power comes great responsibility. That's all. That's true. I just, I always think of the Jurassic Park line, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. All of these things are accurate. And all of those movies ended without any strife whatsoever. No, it was perfectly fine. Well, since we got Dr. Lex here, I figured we better make this episode a little more luxurious. And we've talked about chaos theory before in reference to the lives of our favorite marine mammals, the narwhal. 
The only difference is, in that episode, I had Dr. Deem here to save me when I tried to talk about theoretical math without a safety net. So let's see if I was able to internalize that lesson and do a quick refresher. Chaos theory is an area of study that tries to find the underlying pattern on a seemingly random outcome. And recently, a team of Italian scientists have created a program that will allow users to create jewelry from their chaotic computations. So there's a lot going on here. But basically, a user sets some conditions, simulations run, and that pattern is turned into a 3D model, which is then printed into a resin mold and cast in a precious metal. And I gotta say, based on the initial conditions of me having to describe chaos theory, the outcome was far less chaotic than I thought. So what do we think about this chaotic jewelry and the idea that we can psycom in a more luxurious way? I mean, I think it's super fun, right? Like it's uh, a visual representation of a hard to grasp mathematical theory, right? Yeah. And I think, and they're beautiful. Um, I hope you guys link to it in the show notes because they're really pretty. And given that we just uh, recorded with an artist and we were talking about perspective and the law of thirds and all this math that goes into art, and you f- forget that really math drives everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so why not bring it into jewelry making, right? <laughs> I also love the idea that they're using chaos theory, which I barely understand and i think a lot of people who are not involved in theoretical mathematics also you know they've seen an episode of numbers and that guy says chaos theory (laughs) yeah uh, or they have watched dr ian malcolm try to like drip water on the back of him i still don't understand what he was talking about with that anywho something about hairs so from what i understand at least from reading this article it's um again like looking for that underlying pattern so like weather weather is infinitely complex right and a very small perturbance in the system can have a really big change in the outcome and i think for me from what i took from the article is that chaos theory was trying to explain that model like trying to understand how you know a single degree difference in water temperature can lead to a catastrophic weather phenomenon uh, the butterfly effect yeah. It's not just a mid-tier movie from the early 2000s. <laughs> Kids, if you're listening, do not go watch The Butterfly Effect. No, it it will ruin you. But, I, you know, getting back to the story, I think the best part about this is that obviously this is going to be targeted at people who understand chaos theory even a little bit. And the idea yes. that they're going to be having a visual representation upon them means that people who actually understand chaos theory can communicate chaos theory to people who would just ask, hey, that's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe there's some like knock on effect here of people will understand theoretical mathematics through the beauty of jewelry. I liked that um, there's some sequences that were too complex for the mold. So right. they, had a, they had a 3D print them. And I was like, okay, so they're 3D printing either silver or gold. And I want that printer. Like, how do, how do I get my hands on that printer is really mm-hmm. what I was asking myself. <laughs> yeah. That'll definitely change the uh, podcast merch game if we could get ourselves yeah, right? a precious metal 3D printer. This was a, a, like a good fun story. There's not necessarily a lot of like big big science to communicate in this, but I thought it was, it was interesting, right? Yeah. Like it's, again, the idea that you can illustrate how math and science govern pretty much all of the things in our world by making a piece of jewelry out of it. 
And kind of buried at the very end of this article was some like further things that this could be used for. And one of them was kind of like nano etching these chaos theory inspired designs onto jewelry or uh, gemstones, I guess, specifically to kind of create this math based identifier and you've talked about this this kind of like idea of identifying gems on your podcast what did, what did you think about that little coda at the end yeah i think it's really cool i think as we move into more and more a market where consumers are more conscious of where things come from so things conflict gems are you know something that people are actively trying to avoid and so if you can have something that will guarantee that you know where a gem came from um there i think when we talked about on the podcast it was actually like nano printing a barcode in there so you can um essentially like scan it and say see the whole history the whole provenance of the gem i think that these types of technologies are going to be really revolutionary. Not, I mean, the gem industry is what it is. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, but you know, for, for other things too, I think these types of authentication are going to start becoming uh, really important. And to me, I'll, the whole idea, the whole nanotechnology world is, is fascinating. I haven't, you know, I don't feel like we're at the point where it's making a huge impact either scientifically or you know, economically, but the the promise is there, and it's really fascinating what you can do with nanospheres and nanobots and nano etching. And <laughs> so, the coda to me of this story, right, where they talk about the ability to etch something um, and and create quote miniaturized worlds, immediately led me to think the uh, galaxy is on Orion's belt. <laughs> yes. Yes. You've made it to the end of another edition of the Science Night Podcast, but we've got more coming your way, so be sure to follow us on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at James underscore Read3. Jason, where can everybody follow you? You can find me on Twitter at OregonJM, and by the time this airs, you can probably find me watching a Super Bowl victory parade. Dr. Lex, where can we find, follow you, listen to your podcast, all those fun things you're doing? Yeah, we're, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're Luxi, that's L-U-X-E-S-C-I, and we're all over social media, same same handle, Luxi, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, yeah. Well, we're going to be sure to link to everything that Alexis is doing, and if you want to follow the show, go to Twitter at Cyanite Pod and visit our home on the web, cyanite.com, for links to all of our other social media accounts, past episodes, the stories we talk about, and the people we talk to, and of course, our merch. Maybe we gotta get some chaos theory inspired designs going on that t shirt mill. There's a lot to see, and you can see it all at cyanite.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, but until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.